Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Kick it off with yesterday's $343 billion deficit. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking about all that debt being piled up for Canadian taxpayers. In fact, nearly 11 million Canadians have been supported through the emergency wage subsidy or the CERB. Our our government took on debt to reduce the amount that Canadians themselves had to take on. We were able to do this because Canada entered this crisis on strong footing with a net debt-to-GDP ratio considerably lower than the rest of the G7. Trudeau speaking yesterday saying the government took on all this debt so Canadians would not have to. Of course, Canadians, we're we're responsible for that debt, whether whether the government takes it on, though, of course. Let's check in now with Laura Jones, Executive Vice President, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business across the country. Laura, thanks for coming on again. Oh, thanks, Mike, for having CFIB on. Yeah, you bet. When you saw these numbers yesterday, I mean, everyone was sort of bracing themselves for a big number. And I guess the number that was kicking around yesterday was $300 billion. It kind of soared uh, significantly over that. Do you have any concerns about the amount of debt and deficit that's being piled up here by the government? Well, I think most uh, reasonable Canadians have concerns about the amount that's uh, piling up. I mean, it was sobering numbers yesterday, 10 times. The deficit is 10 times what was projected pre-COVID. Um, it was $87 billion higher than the best guess by the parliamentary budget officer. Um, you know, and of course, anytime you cross a threshold on the, on the total debt, that was the deficit on the debt, you know, that trillion dollar mark is, you know, I, I think all of this is very, very sobering. But of course, I don't think anybody went into yesterday thinking we were going to be pleasantly surprised. Um, I, you know, I think, um, what, what did we expect? Did we expect anything other than sobering numbers? Um, and, and to me, you know, that's not, that kind of is what it is. We knew right. that to respond to this, the government was spending a lot of money. Um, and, you know, I, I, look, even small business who, who don't typically like government spending a lot of money were saying we need help. So I think that is what it is. But to me, the story is how do we get to recovery? Because this right. clearly is not not sustainable. I mean, our debt GDP ratio, my goodness, it jumped from 31% to 49%. I mean, that's, you know, these are very sobering numbers, and they're not sustainable. We can't stay in this mode. We need the economy to um, get going again. And and that's the pivot. And I think what was a bit disappointing about yesterday's statement is it was quite backward looking. And really, there was no pivot to, okay, and, and how do we give business confidence about the recovery? And there, there are some things that need, we need in those programs to bridge back to recovery. Yeah, no, it was interesting yesterday to hear some comments from Yves Giraud. He is the parliamentary budget officer. Now, this guy is independent. He is nonpartisan, so he does not have any kind of political axe to grind here. He's a watchdog on, on the government's budget. And he said something basically similar to what you said. He said, look, we can borrow this amount of money for one year, but what about next year? And he called it scary and disappointing uh, that there doesn't appear to be a plan to kind of rein in this spending as we get out of this nightmare and get people back to work. 
So talk to me a little bit, Laura, about, you know, the perspective on that from the perspective of small business. I mean, you guys are the backbone of the economy here. Do you see a plan here to emerge from this thing? And what do you want to see from the government? Well, you know, there are a couple of things that I think we need to see um, from the government in terms of a plan. And, and do we see a plan? No, not really. I mean, yeah. I look, I appreciate how difficult this is for government. And who would want to be a Canadian finance minister right now, you know, at provincial or federal level? I mean, it's a tough, tough job. Um, but on a recent survey, 70% of business owners said that they, we asked them, do you think government has a good plan for recovery? And, and 70% said no. Um, so there's a lot of concern about that. And that's something that we need to get on right away. In terms of what's needed with the programs, um, you know, we need to create those strong incentives to work and for businesses to produce. And right now, businesses are, are, are in, in some cases in this really tough dilemma because, uh, for example, to qualify for the, the wage subsidy, you need a 30% revenue loss. Well, if you're on the cusp of that and you desperately need that wage subsidy to keep your business alive, you might actually be saying no to business, which is the last thing we want businesses to be doing. Um, same thing with the rent subsidy, which is a 70% uh, revenue uh, reduction threshold. So we have to we have to change that. And then in the in the in the CERB um, uh, program, you know, you earn one dollar over you know a thousand dollars, one penny over a thousand dollars, and you're not eligible for that um, right. for that CERB payment. So I think we need to change the incentives in those programs so that they're really geared towards recovery. We need to pivot these programs a little bit. There's one other program I want to talk about because it's sure. just so important for small business and it's been such a disaster. And the numbers yesterday kind of um, illustrated, you had to kind of piece the numbers together. But if you look at rent relief, you know, less than 10% of the funds that have been allocated for rent relief have been used. And we know so many businesses who have been shut out of that program. And that is kind of a make or break cost. And the reason that's important is if those businesses can bridge back to recovery, then those jobs are there. If they don't, then those jobs aren't there. And that puts us into, you know, again, um, you know, a, a deeper economic mess uh, for 2021. Okay, I think you very uh, effectively put your finger on on some of the problems here with these with these programs. And and by the way, I agree with you that the government had to do what they had to do here. I mean, even even business, like you said, not normally not normally appealing to government to crank up spending. They obviously saw the reality. The conservatives, you know, if anything, the conservatives were were urging the government to spend more. So nobody was saying don't spend the money. Uh, the thing is, though, how do we get out of this thing? And when you take a look at w the way some of these programs are structured, it's got kind of a perverse disincentive for people to actually work or for business to expand, expand their operations. Like when you mentioned the, the wage subsidy, for example, that you only qualify for that if you've got a 30% wage loss. So if suddenly, you know, you get a little uptick in business and your, and your weight and your uh, revenue loss is 29%, you lose that money. You well, know, that's or, right. And, or the and, CERB. And, but, you know, people, people, you can earn a thousand bucks and still keep pocketing your CERB. And so if you go to a thousand and one dollars, then you lose your two thousand bucks a month in your CERB money. So there may be people out there who would refuse to take an extra work shift because they don't want to lose their CERB. I mean, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. 
Yeah, and we're hearing all about, you know, we're hearing about that both, you know, on the business side. Businesses are carefully making some of those calculations because they have yeah. to. It's about their survival. And and same for, you know, for, for employees who are, you know, making those, um, you know, important calculations about how do I, you know, how do I, do, you know, do I go back to work or do I take that extra shift or do I, you know, but, but these have big implications because, you know, we're already hearing um, from businesses who are have, struggling to get staff back. And that's, you know, one of their constraints. So I, I think we really need to, this, this needs to be kind of a, a really um, right up there with making sure that the, the, the curve stays flat. Right. We need to be thinking about how do we now um, get the economy going again and changing the incentives in these programs is kind of a, a key thing. Um, fixing rent relief, I would say, is, is, is very um, is also on that list um, just so that businesses can, can get back and, and survive. Uh, okay. this thing because you don't want to see business failures higher than they need to be. As we measure the cost of helping Canadians, we shouldn't forget that the cost of doing nothing would have been far more to both our health care and our economy. This is not and has not been a time for tightening of belts or for austerity. Okay, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday, of course, nobody was saying do, do nothing. You know, that, that's not the point. Everyone knew you'd have to spend billions of dollars to get through this thing. I think the question is, where's the plan for getting out of this thing? Where's the plan for winding down some of these programs so we can get back to some sort of sustainable level of spending in the country? We didn't see that yesterday. My guest, Laura Jones, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Let's go to your phone call. Sandra on the line in Langley. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Hi, go ahead. So I work at a kennel here, and honestly, our business since March has gone down. Um, I honestly don't see it going back up, and I don't see our prime minister doing anything to help out. Um, It scares me because this is my line of work. This is my career, and I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to go back to school, but what's the government going to do to help me? I'm seeing nothing. And also, too, with the CERB. I'm going to be the one on the hook paying that back with my taxes next year. So I've been on CERB since it first came out. By next year tax season, I'm going to be on the line for so much more money. And that's going to hurt me. And they're they're going to be fine. They're going to make back all their money with their taxes. Okay, okay, Sandra. Thanks for calling in. Like, I can, I can sort of hear it in her voice there, Laura. What, what is? Are you must get? You must have conversations like this all the time with people in small business. Oh yeah, there are a lot of business owners right now who are really hurting. I mean, you know, what we see as customers on the street is, you know, the new cleaning protocols, and you can get a haircut again and sit on a restaurant patio. But behind that, the stress is through the roof. Um, and it's because while a lot of businesses are open now, their revenues are far from normal. Only one in four is back to normal revenue. Most are still way down, and only one in three is back to normal staffing, and that's partly because of the, of course, the, the, the wage subsidy is helping with that. Um, but I think Sandra raises a good point about taxes, and, you know, there was a missed opportunity here, too. There are two uh, taxes that are going up for business owners, which include the carbon tax and the um, Canada Pension Plan uh, tax. So, you know, it's really, really important. And it was reassuring to hear the finance minister say that he has no plans to increase taxes. Um, But it's going to be critical to keep taxes 
um, reasonable and to keep, uh, you know, red tape to a minimum. Like these things are just like baseline now expectations uh, for business. Squeeze in a few more calls here. Keith and Maple Ridge. Hey, Keith. Hi, Michael. Uh, Hi, Sandra. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, go ahead. I just wanted to uh, mention my wife. Uh, she's a EA for the school board, and uh, when the summertime comes during the school year, also she uh, has a part-time job. So when the summertime comes, she goes on unemployment insurance, and she's allowed to work and make some additional income to kind of keep the income at the same level as when she's working at the school board. As soon as she applied for EI this year, she was automatically put on CERB, and thus she's had to turn down shifts from the job and potentially losing a second job now. So. You mean like uh, she's, tur- she's, she's turning down money. she's turn she's turning down shifts because she doesn't want to lose her serb right? So yeah, because if she loses her serb, then she you know, has to work a full time job again instead yeah. of being off for the summer. Right? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is what I was. Ta- this, thanks for the call. I mean, this is what I was talking about the kind of the perverse way this thing has been set up. I mean, Laura. I mean, how often are you hearing this? This is like a disincentive for people to work. They don't want to lose their serb. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, at the beginning, and, and the finance minister talked about this yesterday, Yesterday, that he, you know, they really wanted to be um, the programs to get out the door quickly and to be simple. And they, you know, and so they had to do some of these crude programs where there were these cliffs, you know, with the revenue reductions and the, and the way the CERB was set up. But now, now we need to pivot away from that absolutely to yeah. create the incentives to work. I mean, we can't be, we can't all be government employees. Um, we yeah, need right. to get off subsidies and get back to, you know, sales and getting back to work. They need to restructure these programs to, to make it so y- y- there has to be some sort of sliding scale or something so the people can get, uh, there's no disincentive to not work or for a business owner to not increase their business. Let's go to Tony and Langley. Hi, Tony. He's got about a minute left. Hey, Mike. Uh, love your program. Um, I agree with what you just said, exactly what you just said. I'm a truck driver and I am a conservative. i I I'm shocked at how people, you know, you look at the America and how they give way more money um, to, to the people for monthly payments. I mean, they make almost too much is what a lot of the conservatives are saying out there. Um, but what I feel is that, you know, you make $2,000, it's tax, you make sixteen fifty. Uh, how do you put money back into the economy? Like you said, they've yeah. got to restructure these. they got to re- they they got to fix. Thank you, Tony, for the call. They've got to restructure it somehow so people don't want to not work because they don't want to give up this money that they're getting from the government. Laura, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having CFIB on. We always appreciate it, Mike. All right, let's talk about police street checks now in the city of Vancouver in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in the United States. We've seen unprecedented anti-racism rallies across America and also in our own country and demands for police reform. There's a, a new focus on police misconduct and whether police behaviors and regulations should be changed, especially when it comes in the city of Vancouver to the issue of street checks. Now, in Vancouver, uh, the Vancouver Police Department had already brought in some major changes to the way street checks are conducted by officers, but critics still demanding that the practice of a street check be banned completely in the city of Vancouver. That call coming, including from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Paul Hasem. Vancouver City Council could be getting rid of street checks by the VPD. Mayor Kennedy Stewart will present a motion at Council tonight calling for an end to the controversial practice. A street check is a random stop and frisk, and according to VPD, officers conducted about 100,000 street checks between 2008 and 2017. 
The numbers show that indigenous and black people were a high percentage of that. The police board made changes to street checks back in January, and since then, checks have dropped by about 91%. But still, Mayor Stewart says the practice unfairly targets minorities. They have been reduced because the police board have done... Uh, have done a lot of work in this area, uh, but there still are a number of street checks and they've shown to be, um, you know, disproportionately conducted on some uh, parts of, this, uh, of the community. And so uh, I think uh, abolition is the way to go. The VPD saying in a statement that street checks are not random or arbitrary, but are performed when an officer encounters a suspicious circumstance or someone believed to be involved in criminal activity. All right, let's get the perspective of police officers now. My guest is Tom Stamatakis. He's a well-known uh, veteran police officer in Vancouver, former head of the Vancouver Police Officers Union. He is now the president of the Canadian Police Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, no problem. Okay, let's first of all, let's talk about what, what a street check is. I think there may be a lot of people out there who don't understand exactly what a street check is. Could you define it for me? Like, what is that, a street check? Well, I think that's part of the problem is um, it means different things to different people, and I, and I don't think um, everybody's talking about the same thing when they mention the word street check. I think it's an unfortunate term. But, uh, you know, arguably you could say um, it, could, it could capture any interaction between the police and a, and a, and a citizen in the community, um, particularly one where it's not as a result of a call or, or some other formal request for the police to participate in, the, in that interaction. Right. So it might be, for an example, a police officer stops someone on the street, say in the downtown east side, because for what what a reason that they're suspicious? Do they have to have probable cause to stop someone and ask them questions? But I think that's part of the problem and part of the frustration. Uh, you know, the fact is that uh, random stops of people are in fact prohibited uh, currently. So I'm not quite sure what the mayor. Um, you know, what his motivation is or what he hopes to accomplish there. Not only did the Vancouver police bring in uh, very strident rules around how the police ought to interact with the public in the community, but, but the province has also created a standard around uh, those interactions in the province of British Columbia and the police support the changes and agree that we shouldn't be randomly stopping people in the community and we shouldn't be we particularly shouldn't be stopping people based only on you know what race they happen to be or or those kinds of things. However, there are legitimate reasons why the public and the police, um, the public would expect the police to interact with people, and and as long as the police have lawful reasons for for stopping someone, they suspect that a crime's been committed or about to be committed, yeah. or there's risk to another person, uh, the public would expect those kinds of interactions to continue. Not to mention. The police often check on vulnerable people, so homeless people, addicted people who are, who perhaps look like they, they might be in some kind of medical distress. And I think yeah. most people would expect that the police would continue to do that. Yeah, would that, be, would that be technically categorized as a street check? Like if a police officer sees someone that looks like maybe they're overdosing or they're in trouble or something and they stop and talk to them, would that be, would that be regarded as a street check? Yeah, I think that uh, those are some of the issues and, and what creates some of the confusion. I think, you know, yeah. police will often stop and check on vulnerable people and want to make sure that they're okay, yeah. and want to make sure that they have a safe place to live, uh, may want to collect some information. Other 
types of interactions might include those engaged in high-risk activities. So, you know, marginalized and vulnerable sex trade workers. Uh, if we know who they are and where they're working, if if a family member reports them missing, for example, or if there's some um, other concern that that they may have been the victim of some sort of crime or or uh, a victim of a uh, of a john or something. Uh, at least we have some information that we can go on in terms of investigating uh, what might have happened. Okay, speaking of Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association, I'm taking a look at the, the current regulations regarding police checks in the city of Vancouver, and they've been changed dramatically, and the number of these checks have gone down by like 90%. There's like been like a huge drop in the number of these interactions between police and the public. But if you take a look at these guidelines, I mean, the, the guidelines look quite comprehensive, that it says police officers cannot conduct a street check based on identity factors so you can't just stop someone based on uh, their identity which includes here's the list economic or social status race color ancestry place of origin religion marital status family status physical or mental disability sex sexual orientation gender expression or identity or age a police officer cannot stop someone based on any of those, simply on based on any of those factors. And by the way, it's also voluntary. So, you know, if someone is stopped and questioned by the police, they don't have to answer, right? You know, they can say to the police, I'm not going to answer your question. Well, that's correct. And, yeah. and in many jurisdictions, there's been an additional obligation pay, placed on the police to inform the person that the check is voluntary and that they don't have to answer those questions. Right. Uh, so, so these are all issues that have been very extensively canvassed. But through that canvas, there are also other, you know, credible people in the, in, in the community, uh, Justice Michael Tullock in Ontario, for example, who acknowledge that there, there, is, there are legitimate reasons for the police to interact with citizens in the community. Okay, can you give me a couple of examples of that? Like, let's say, okay, you've already mentioned that maybe a police officer would want to check in someone in distress, which I think anyone, any reasonable person would think that's a, that would be a good thing for a police officer to do. If they think someone's in trouble, you talk to them. Uh, what would be another example of that? Like, it, it, let's say uh, a police officer suspects someone of a crime or suspects someone of having, I don't know, stolen stolen merchandise on them or something. Is that a legitimate yeah, that's right. Reason? I mean, you, you, as a police officer, you have to be able to describe or articulate the reasons why you're stopping someone. So if you, you know, if it's three o'clock in the morning in a residential neighborhood uh, that you routinely patrol in and there's typically no traffic, whether it's vehicular or pedestrian, and you happen to see somebody emerging from between two houses carrying uh, a bag that looks like it's full of uh, uh, um, items and there have been a rash of B&Es in that particular neighborhood that have been reported and that have been provided, that information's been provided to you, then in those circumstances it would be legitimate for the police officer to stop that person to ask them, you know, a few questions about, you know, do they live in the neighborhood? Do they, and if the person replies that, yeah, I live in this house just over there and I'm just on my way to work, then that's the end of it. On the other hand, if the person can't provide any information to confirm that they live in the neighborhood, or if you see that the items look like they've been stolen, then you have a legitimate reason to investigate that. And I think the public would expect us to do that. Okay. If police checks were banned in the city of Vancouver, like the mayor wants, do you think the public would be less safe? But that's the frustrating piece to this, Michael. Police uh, street checks in the context of what the mayor is describing, you just read the criteria. Yes. They are banned. Those banned. kinds of street checks are banned. Yeah. The reason why the, the, the number of street checks that occur have dropped dramatically is because police officers 
are complying with the rules that have been imposed by the police board in Vancouver and by the province in British Columbia. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about police street checks in the city of Vancouver, my guest, Tom Stamataka, is president of the Canadian Police Association. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart wants police street checks stopped and banned and prohibited in the city. Phone me on it, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Scott on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Scott. Hey, Mike. Um, Go ahead. Just a comment about the... uh, the, um example the expert brought up wouldn't the police have to reasonably articulate that a crime is in is in progress or has been committed or is about to be committed and to just stop somebody with a bag at three in the morning that's that's not a crime to me and if somebody says well i just live over here that would not be the end of it the next thing they'd be asking for is id then a police file would be generated okay tom stamatakis could you expand on that yeah, the caller is absolutely right. The police officer would have to articulate why they feel that a crime might uh, about to be committed. And um, so that, that's a fair comment and exactly what police officers should be doing. Look, you know, police officers have a common law duty and a statutory duty to do certain things, prevent crime, protect the public, uh, protect property. And in fact, if they don't do those things, they can be disciplined. And I have had to represent police officers who have been disciplined because they didn't respond to a B&E or they responded to a site of a B&E but didn't check enough people or didn't check the people that arguably might have been responsible for that B&E. So you can't have it both ways. I mean, police officers have, like I said, these statutory obligations, the common law obligations, and they just need to do those things in the way that the province and the city uh, or the police board have prescribed, and and I think that that's totally reasonable. Okay, okay. So in the example that you cited, that the, the caller reference. So let's say, for example, the police get a call from someone who said someone just broke into my my apartment or my house or whatever, and a police officer goes down there. It's three o'clock in the morning. They see someone coming out of an alley with a bag. You're saying that that's it's reasonable for a police officer to stop that person. That's probable cause. In certain circumstances, so if, yeah, if there was a call that a B&E just occurred, if it's a neighborhood that the officer is familiar with because they patrol the area on a daily basis and there typically isn't any activity, if there's other evidence that suggests that a crime has been committed or is about to be committed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's not a question of just stopping the person just because they happen to be there. You do have to articulate the reasons why you're doing that. And the person has, you have to respect the person's rights um, in the context of our, our um, society and, and the law and the, and the community. To remain silent, right? They don't have to answer your questions, right? Uh, they absolutely do not have to answer yeah, your questions. Right. Okay, Brian and Coquitlam. Hey, Brian. Yeah, how's it going? Good. Go ahead. So, uh, myself and, you know, a handful of other uh, people here in the Lower Mainlands, uh, you know, we we drive our cars around and go into Vancouver and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, go for a night through Vancouver. And, you know, it feels like, you know, like myself, I, every time I've gone through Vancouver, I always like, got to check my shoulder. Cause you know, I drive my car through and I'm worried that I'm going to get pulled over by an officer and it starts off as a random check. And next, thing you know, we're getting vehicle inspections or, um, you know, our cars are being towed off the road, and... Why? Why would they do that? Um, mostly because we're not, our cars are unsafe, even though they're, like, you know, perfectly stocked. Like, I I drive a, like, a brand-new truck, and 
I've been pulled over because I was told that my vehicle was uh, um, not meeting safety regulations, even though it was brand new, nothing was changed on it, and just the way it looks. Now, okay, let me let me see what Tom starts- thinks about that. Tom, what do you think of that? Well. <laughs> The vehicle's not going to be pulled over unless there's a there there there's a reasonable uh, suspicion that it's not in compliance with Motor Vehicle Act regulations yeah. um, around uh, different specifications for vehicles. If it's getting towed, there has to be a lawful reason for that tow to happen. It's not going to happen randomly. Let's go to Al in Surrey on the open line. Hi, Al. Yeah, I've stopped driving down to Gastown, Water Street, uh, Spaghetti House, because you're worried about when you park, is your car going to be broken into? I've actually had street people come up and ask for money to protect my car. So Mm -hmm. all of this is a bunch of baloney. I actually like to talk to police. It makes me feel safe. Some of the street people, they like to talk to the police to have them say, uh, what's cooking, how you're doing, uh, any, anything like that. Now, if they're uncomfortable, that's because in their head they're uncomfortable. But the police are protection, and it makes me feel safe, etc. Okay. okay. This whole here- thing is a bunch of baloney. Okay, thanks a lot for calling in. All right, uh, Tom Stabatakis, we just we just have got a minute left, but we we hear a lot about car break-ins. I mean, that's very common kind of crime, uh, p- car break-ins and stuff. Like, let's say a police officer, let's say there's been a rash of car break-ins, and the, a police officer is patrolling late at night. They see someone looking around a car. Is that a reasonable uh, a reasonable uh, cause for? Yeah, I think it, stop- I think depending on the time of day and depending on the crime patterns in that neighborhood, if there have been a rash of break-ins enters, I think most people would expect. The police officer to check someone peering into cars, yeah. uh, seemingly looking like they're about to break in. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming on today. You're right. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder you're welcome all right welcome back let's talk about youth vaping now it's been a big problem in our country and in our province for sure i remember back when the schools were open on uh, there's a high school close to my house if i ever walked my dog by there or whatever one of the things you could always count on seeing was a group of kids surrounded in a vapor cloud. A lot of these kids were vaping. I talked, I got two boys in high school myself. A lot of their friends were vaping. And I'll tell you, it's, uh, it was disturbing. It's worrying, you know, because I think where these vape pens can addict a whole new generation of kids on nicotine. Think about this. I talked to my uh, some of my own kids about how much vaping is going on in schools back when schools were operating normally. A lot of kids would be vaping in the school bathroom. Sometimes you'd even have kids vaping right in class in front of the teacher. This is what they used to call stealth vaping. Some of these vape pens are so small, you just tuck them into your pocket and your jeans and take a quick puff even uh, at any place, any time. It's troubling. Now, check this out. New advertising restrictions brought in now by the federal government to prevent advertising 
from targeting young people to take up vaping. This Canadian government announced these regulations this week. It will now be prohibited to advertise vacant uh, vaping products in public spaces where they can be seen or heard by youth. Now, you think about that. That's a lot of places. And they're talking not only brick-and-mortar stores, but online and in other social media channels. That is a pretty wide advertising ban on vaping products in order to protect young people in our country. Do you think it goes too far? Let's talk about it now with my guest, Rob Cunningham, Canadian Cancer Society. He's a senior policy analyst. Rob, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Good to be with you. What do you think of these advertising restrictions on vaping? Well, we uh, we strongly support them. I guess that'd be no surprise. We are very, very concerned by this dramatic increase in youth vaping. Canada-wide, um, over a four-year period for grade t- uh, 10 to 12 students, it's increased from 9% to 29%, more than tripling. And <laughs> now, why? There's a number of factors, but one of them is advertising. And in uh, mid-2018, the tobacco companies entered the market uh, once e-cigarettes with nicotine were actually legalized, technically they'd been illegal before, and they had these uh, extensive advertising campaigns, um, you know, which harken back to decades ago what they did for tobacco advertising. And while there are now some um, restrictions on the content of ads in terms of people and in terms of lifestyle advertising that's banned, there was federally, uh, or, or in B.C., there was no restrictions on the location of ads. Right. So there's ads on television, on radio, on billboards, on social media, in uh, print publications, on the Internet, all kinds of places, outside shopping malls. Uh, I, think, I think there's a, an issue with respect to the SkyTrain. Um, and um, so that's going to change with these regulations. And those, anywhere that would all the, be banned the, now. All those ads would be banned now, right? That's correct. Yeah. They can only be in places such as a, a vape shop where kids can't get into, potentially a bar or a casino, or if you can have some online ordering system where you can have some legitimate age verification. Mm. Uh, so it's going to be much more curtailed. We would have liked the total ban on everything, um, except in, in vape shops. Even the Canadian Vaping Association would support that. Uh, but these regulations are a huge advance. They're going to protect kids, and, and, and we're, we're supportive of what Health Minister Patty Hyde has done. Okay, that sounds like pretty close to almost like a blanket ban on advertising on, on vaping. Although, So where would they be allowed to continue to advertise vaping products? So like, like you mentioned, it would have to be in somewhere that's age-restricted, right? So like in a vape shop where young people are not allowed in, they do age checks at the door, you'd be allowed to put an, an advertisement, display an advertisement in that store, I imagine. Is that correct? That's correct. And, you know, know, a few other locations um, like bars. Okay, um, bar. Now, you might be able to do a few things, like if you had documented, like, text messages to adults, uh, that may still be allowed. You know, we don't like that. Uh, But a few things like that may be allowed as well. Okay, the government also announcing uh, the restrictions on the display of vaping products at point of sale. So where youth would have access, that will now be prohibited. So what, how is that going to work? Does that mean like you would not be able to display a vaping product in, let's say, a corner store or a gas station? That's correct. Now, that would apply across Canada. Um, in, in the case of B.C. and basically all provinces and territories except Alberta and Nunavut have done this. Um, Alberta has not yet done it. Um, and so uh, that's right. So if you go into a convenience store, uh, you will not be able to, across Canada, 
you will not be able to see any um, displays of vaping products or promotions uh, anywhere kids can go. But in a specialty vape shop, you'd still be able to do that. Right. Is that similar to the restrictions on tobacco? Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And, okay. you know, kid, kid, we don't want kids, when they're going to buy bubble gum or a soft drink, to be exposed to all of these addictive products. And uh, we've had this experience with tobacco for an especially long time. And so that's been extended to, um, to vaping products. And similarly, like cannabis, is in, you know, we don't sell cannabis in convenience stores. Uh, you know, there's specialty controls on that. Right. Do you think that uh, vaping products had been targeted at youth uh, prior to some of these restrictions being brought in, whether it was advertising, display of vaping products in, say, a corner store, uh, and also some of the, the juice flavors that vaping products were promoting, whether it's like Tutti Fruity or any kind of fruit-flavored or candy-flavored juice that would go into a vape pen that would be, some people might think, is targeted at young people? So there is no doubt that the marketing strategies, especially by the tobacco companies, were very appealing to kids um, through the flavors, through the, the lifestyle advertising, through ads with young people. In the United States right now, Juul is being sued uh, by multiple state governments, by school boards uh, for marketing to kids. And, you know, there's some, some information that's come out uh, in terms of internal admissions or, you know, uh, whether it's documents or statements by former employees. Um, it's very serious. And, you know, it, we don't have such a dramatic increase in youth vaping accidentally. <laughs> um, and we know that the tobacco companies, the Supreme Court of Canada, in the past has said that they have targeted underage kids. And they've been very successful at that with respect to smoking. And they know how to succeed. Now, um, there's more that can be done. And we're pleased that uh, Health Minister... Uh, Patty Heidi has signaled that they're continuing to work on restrictions on flavors federally, right, right. but also have a maximum nicotine level uh, of, of, you know, they're looking at 20 milligrams per milliliter, which is what the European Union has as a standard for its uh, 28 countries. It, some products being sold are at 59 or 57 uh, milligrams, almost wow. triple the EU wow. limit. And that's addicting kids. And that yeah. is simply a not necessary. Now, in BC, Health Minister Adrian Dix has committed to that maximum of 20. Uh, he was the first mover in Canada on that. So we're waiting uh, for those provincial regulations, along with other BC controls with respect to flavors, not allowing them to be sold except in adult-only premises. Um, yeah. An e-cigarette tax, which is already in force uh, since January 1st, which is uh, uh, 2020, and that's the first province in Canada to do that. So there's more to come uh, from BC, and we're looking forward to Health Minister Adrian Dix um, uh, uh, finalizing those measures. Okay. Speaking to Rob Cunningham from the Canadian Cancer Society about youth vaping, I, I think a lot of people will welcome these type of regulations. I'm, myself as a parent, I, I worry about uh, kids vaping because I think we've been making so much progress in getting kids to stop taking up smoking cigarettes, and now we seem to quickly backslide with so many kids trying vaping instead, and it's, it's still nicotine addiction. But let me let me ask you this, like, one of the things I wonder about is whether vaping products are, could actually be a successful thing and a, and a beneficial thing as a smoking cessation device. Like if we can get people to stop smoking tobacco or cigarettes and get them vaping instead, uh, isn't that good for your health? Like isn't, aren't vapes, vapes safer than cigarettes? Like I lost, I lost both my parents to, uh, my, both, both my parents were uh, lost to, to smoking. 
And I, I often wonder, if I had a time machine, I would love to go back and say, why don't you try vaping instead? Maybe they would have lived longer. What are your thoughts? So uh, Health Canada has acknowledged that e-cigarettes are less harmful than conventional cigarettes, right. provided a person switches completely and there's not dual use. Now, unfortunately, uh, 65% of people who are using e-cigarettes um, are also vaping, and that's not what's intended. Um, so there, the, the, this product has intended a, you know, a role for those unable to quit. Unfortunately, what's happening is that kids are using these, and young adults who have never smoked are using these in dramatic numbers. And, that's, and that is simply what's not supposed to be happening. And so should they continue to be able to be sold? And accessible, yeah. yes. Okay. Should, should we have much greater regulation? All right, welcome back. My guest, Rob Cunningham, Canadian Cancer Society. And we're talking about vaping, some tough new advertising rules and point-of-sale display rules for vaping products brought down by the Canadian government this week. They are concerned about youth vaping. Do you agree with the crackdown? Call me up on it. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Rob, are these vaping products, are they, are they just as addictive as cigarettes? Like if, if kids are sucking in uh, nicotine through a vape product, is it just as bad as tobacco? Well, uh, they can be. Uh, there's a wide variety of e-cigarette and vaping products out there. Um, as we discussed, you know, some of these have, uh, you know, super, uh, like very high levels of nicotine compared to other e-cigarette products. And some of them, like Juul and, and, and Vipe, and some of the, the more recently introduced products in Canada have nicotine salts, you know, which may be an element of, of, of increasing addiction. So we haven't got what the is whole that? story Nic- on that what is, what is that? Nicotine salts? What is that? Well, it, it's an element. You know, it's sort of like a, a component, an additive, um, but it seems to make it easier to inhale um, and, 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 you know, derive from nicotine. And so we don't have all, it's fairly new in terms of the science is, is, is delving more into this, but there are indica- there's there are indications that, um, you know, there's a vast number of youth are becoming addicted, and, and that's just not right, and that's why we need more regulation. Okay. Going back to the smoking cessation element of it, that's where I think that maybe there is a place for vape products, And but you were mentioning that what the studies show that a lot of people who use vape don't, don't end up quit, quitting cigarettes either? So there's about two-thirds, and we see this in different countries, about two-thirds of people vaping are, are dual users. They're also smoking. Now, um, you know, for some people, this may be a transition from one to the other, uh, but it also may inhibit people from quitting uh, because if, wow. you know, they're not, their spouse doesn't want them smoking inside the house or the car, uh, or they may take it for particular reasons to tide them over. Um, so for some, and that's a problem, uh, if dual use inhibits quitting. And certainly that's a strategy of tobacco companies. They want to keep people in the game as long as possible. Um, you know, so we just have to get the, the regulation right. Yeah, I don't know, though. I've, I've talked to people who have successfully quit tobacco because they transitioned to uh, vaping, and they said it's made it a huge difference in their, in their lives. And I, and I believe it. I think for a lot of people it's been a, a good thing. But the other thing I wonder about is the flavors. Like you mentioned that uh, there's calls to ban some of these kid-friendly flavors, whether they're candy flavors or cotton candy or whatever, uh, and maybe that's a good thing to prevent vapes from appealing to kids. But I know that adults like, they like flavors too, right? Like adults who want to use a vaping product, they enjoy vaping a flavored vape. Yeah. Now there's also tobacco flavor that, um, you know, where states and provinces have taken action, this tobacco flavors allowed. 
And so we now have four U.S. states, uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, New Jersey, and New York, um, that have banned flavors except tobacco. California has passed the state Senate, has gone to the Assembly. That's also been adopted in Nova Scotia, and there's a proposed regulation in uh, Prince Edward Island. So it's been done in a growing number of places. Um, and, and I think if people want this alternative, um, you know, either unflavored or with tobacco flavor, that would remain available. Um, and so, it, you know, I think adults are much more likely to have tobacco flavor where kids are not really interested in that. I, I guess, uh, but, so, I, I guess, but I've talked, to, I've talked to adults, too, who like the flavors, and they say that the flavors help them to, to quit uh, cigarettes. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's been established, and I'm, and I'm sure people say that. Um, on a, uh, but on, on an aggregate basis, population-wide, I don't think that's been demonstrated. Okay. And they may have quit. Certainly, for some people, um, e-cigarettes are a substitute for cigarettes. Let's uh, squeeze in um, one phone call here real quick sure. in the time we got left. Dane in Coquitlam. you got to go fast, though. Dane, hi. Hey, how's it going? Um, I was 16, and I started vaping at, when I was in high school. And I, obviously, I couldn't go buy my own stuff, and I actually figured out that I could make it myself. So by banning stuff, I don't really think it's going to stop the problem. Um, and I mean, I also quit, I don't know, probably about a year ago and I put the thing down and I never touched it again. It really wasn't that hard. I think people would have a harder time quitting having their coffee every single morning than they would have uh, quitting vaping. Okay, I'm glad to hear you're able to quit. Uh, Rob, what do you think of that? we just got a minute left here. Well, some people are able to quit smoking too. A lot of people are. That doesn't mean it's addictive. Some people are able to quit, you know, heroin and cocaine. But we do have a real problem. And, and I'm glad he's able to quit, but that's not the case for many others. And, of course, we're concerned that many youth who start on nicotine, uh, they're more likely later to become cigarette smokers. Uh, so we need a, you know, a comprehensive strategy. Rob, you sure know your stuff on this. Thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate it. Mike, my pleasure. Anytime.